Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In, in this podcast, I read through American literature using the Library of America as my main source, giving my commentary, thoughts, some historical context for um, as I go along. Each episode will cover around 100 pages. What you just heard was Bessie Smith, Downhearted Blues, which was a top song of 1923, which is the same year that Gene Toomer uh, published his masterpiece, Kane. Now, for many scholars, Kane is the foundational work of the Harlem Renaissance. Let's put it that way. It's certainly a work of American modernism. Uh, it's very experimental. Um, and it is really interesting, and we're going to get to it in a minute. I want to say that this episode is the beginning of a 14 or 15 episode series on the Harlem Renaissance. Uh, the Library of America published a two-volume two collection of Harlem Renaissance novels, making it with, with about nine, with nine novels in the two volumes. And I really like this collection. Uh, mostly, the Library of America focused on, on writers, and they would publish the complete works of writers. But a lot of the Harlem Renaissance writers really didn't write enough to you know, collect them into one book. So this was a way to get these voices into the Library of America. Uh, and they've been doing that more and more lately, such as uh, they did a series on fantastic or horror literature. They did a series on science fiction. Uh, I mean, they've been doing these really interesting series on on participants in the American wars. But these are writers who wouldn't normally have showed up because they didn't write enough for a whole collection. Um, that's that's the case with 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 some of these. Or if they didn't write it, if they wrote enough to have a collection, they didn't write enough. I guess I would want to say significant works uh, that that would justify a whole volume about them. Um, anyways. The nine novels that I'll be looking at are, of course, Gene Toomer's Kane, starting with that. And this is in chronological order. Uh, Claude McKay's Home to Harlem, Nella Larson's Quicksand, Jesse Redman Fawcett's Plum Bun, Wallace Thurman's The Blacker the Berry, Langston Hughes' Not Without Laughter, George S. Shiler's Black No More, Rudolph Fisher, The Conjurman Dies, and Arna Bonetemp's Black Thunder. Some of these novels can be considered under one episode. Using my approach of 100 pages a day, I think the shortest is something like 120 pages. Most, however, will, will take me a couple of weeks. In addition to looking at the works themselves, I hope to explore some of the themes associated with the nonfiction writing of the time. And I pulled out a, a kind of a nonfiction collection of Harlem Renaissance documents. Many of these are, are essays um, by important uh, writers from that period, such as W.E.B. Du Bois, Elaine Locke. Uh, and those are two we're actually going to look at in this episode. And then I'll pick the music selections instead of, as I normally do, picking music that's just kind of playful and fun and, and thematically connected in a way. Instead, I'm going to pick music that's drawn from black musicians working in the 20s and 30s, which is kind of the period of the Harlem Renaissance. Now, one more piece of setup about this series. The language of the novels of the Harlem Renaissance are realistic. A major focus of the period was accuracy and realism in depictions of African-American life. And it also connected to realism in, in African-American language and how they, how they spoke. Um, this is all very good and it makes the novels very rich, but it causes a problem for me with the use of the N-word. I've chosen not to use it in this podcast for 
a number of reasons. Um, it might interrupt with my clean lyrics rating on iTunes, but there's also much better reasons. Unfortunately, that word appears in texts in contexts that are true to life. And that was the intention of the authors. Um, so it's a bit of a dilemma. I'll just say that I don't think they're strictly necessary and there's no reason to really go down that road. Some of you who may have been listening may know that I'm a fan of letting the author's words speak for themselves, um, often quoting selections of the text or, or quote, even quoting the significant sections. Since this issue is going to come up again in other writers, unfortunately it comes up in Lovecraft from time to time um, in a way that kind of like how the Harlem Renaissance writers deal with it, it comes up a lot in Zora Neale Hurston. And it's, and it's true in others too. So I'll just kind of set this policy that I'll try to avoid the need or I'll just choose not to quote sections that use the N-word. Um, if this is not possible, if there's really a really important quote or something you really need to pay attention to, I will just maybe make a substitution. Hopefully no one will really, really notice. The word Negro will stay if used in text or in historical terminology, such as the quote-unquote new Negro. Uh, if, I, if, if I'm not using it in that kind of context, I'll just use black or African-American. The same goes with the word mulatto or other words associated with racial heritage or color, such as the commonly used word yellow when referring to biracial people. Uh, color is a huge theme in these novels, really big. Uh, I think all, essentially all the books in the Harlem Renaissance collection, these nine novels deal in one way or another with the color line. And so it's just a big issue, uh, at least in these texts. I will try to use the word biracial when speaking for myself or my analysis, but I'll not shy away from these words when used in text. Now, these are archaic terms, but some of these were not archaic in the Harlem Renaissance. Like I was the best example of that is Negro. Finally, since I'm not very good at it, I'll avoid quoting dialogue that is heavily within dialect or accented. If you listen to my series on the octopus, you'll know how much I struggle trying to read these, these kind of German immigrant uh, language. So it's, it's, it's just something I, I a bit struggle with. I would need a lot of practice to maybe get it right. And I'm not a audiobook reader or anything like that. But again, I want to point out that part of the richness of these works and uh, you know, these works of the Harlem Renaissance is in their effort to be true to life. I hope that I hope to keep language issues to a minimum, um, at least, you know, not make it a big deal. But I also don't don't want to ignore the important role in Harlem Renaissance writing of authors really trying to be true to life. It, I think it's really one of the things that makes these books special. So without any more preparation, let's get into Gene Toomer's Kane the inaugural work of fiction of, of the Harlem Renaissance. Jean Toomer was born in 1899. His parents were fairly well off. His father was a planter, although he was born a slave. He was able to work his way up to be fairly successful after slavery. His mother was the daughter of a Louisiana politician. Uh, now, this is really interesting. In fact, Jean Toomer's grandfather was the first black man to be elected to the governor of a state. This man is P.B.S. Pinchback, his maternal grandfather. He moved into the home of Pinchback, who was living in Washington, when his parents broke up. He was very, very light-skinned. Um, both of his parents were biracial. 
This provided for some self-confessed aloofness from African-American life. And maybe to a degree, Kane is an effort to, to come to terms with that. He, he, but we'll see. Um, I think it's likely that because these, these stories or I guess the vignettes in Kane and that we'll, we'll get to how this novel is constructed in a bit, but a lot of them are doing with, with Southern black life. A lot of them do deal with the color line. So that that's, he's drawing perhaps from his own life and his own experiences. Some stories seem to be drawn directly from his own experiences, but at the same time, he's trying to get at life in the South, uh, in a, in a realistic way. Okay. So after living in Washington for a while, he moved in with his mother, but that didn't really work out. So he returned to living in Washington in 1921. He started teaching in the South, particularly in Georgia. And this is where he got his material he needed to write Kane. Much of the novel is set essentially in rural Georgia, and the rest is set in Washington. So his settings are are true to life. I don't even think any of this novel is technically set in the in the in the in Harlem. In 1923, he wrote Kane, which was based on other things he was been writing. He collected a lot of things together. Now, in 1923, he married a white woman from Portage, Wisconsin, named Marguerite Latimer. Uh, this is about an hour from my hometown, so I couldn't resist making this 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 reference. So Gene Toomer was thrown in the middle of a debate over the proper role of literature for politicized African Americans. Now, in the years after World War One, three big things happened that that really was was creating the foundation for a sustained period of activism. The the most significant since Reconstruction, and you know, it would pretty much be sustained with a few ups and downs until what most people call the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s. But what you can actually look at the civil rights movement as kind of beginning with World War One, if, if you want to take the right point of view. These three things are, 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 of course, Wilson's 14 points, one of them, particularly his claim that people should have the right to national self-determination. Historians have since called this the Wilsonian moment, that moment that that called out for self-determination affected not just people in Europe, where it was applied in the Treaty of Versailles that ended World War One, but it was picked up by people in India and in Asia, in Africa. African Americans picked it up. The Garvey movement picked up this language too. So this idea that all people have a right to self-determination. So that that rhetoric was very influential. A second thing is you had hundreds of thousands of black soldiers returning from World War One. And they were they were heavy, they experienced heavy propaganda about the evils of Germany, the evils of their enemies, and when they returned home, they were less willing to accept tyranny at home, whether in the South or in, in cities in the North. So that kind of the politicization of of African American soldiers um, was a big part of it. Uh, many African American soldiers saw French colonial soldiers from Africa. Um, Maybe not fighting technically alongside them, but but knowing of them, you had French the French military giving awards to black soldiers that weren't being given by the to the by them from the American army. So there was this this realization that America has a deep rooted racial problem, and and these people were less willing to come back and accept it. A third thing is the Great Migration. The Great Migration uh, was the movement of about one to two million African Americans from. The, the rural south to the urban north. They were moving to flee Jim Crow, 
moving to flee poor economic conditions, but also they were taking advantage of the fact that immigration stopped during the war and it created a lot of job opportunities in the cities. That's kind of the, the sociological foundation of the Harlem Renaissance, actually. So these three things are happening, and it all kind of leads into the Harlem Renaissance and a broader period of black activism. Um, anyways, within this debate, there, are so, there were some people who said culture and art should reinforce the best in black life and therefore be a tool of uplift and improvement. Others thought that art should reflect the reality of life. Now, in general, I'd say, reading, having read most of these nine novels, um, or rereading them, because uh, I actually read these all a couple years ago, but um, it's going through my reread, I've, I've noticed that most of them would side with the argument that literature should side with the, reflect the reality of life. In general, these writers were strictly honest about African-American life, as we may say, warts and all. Um, now, this debate, we have kind of two voices in this debate. You know, one is, one is W.E.B. Du Bois. Uh, of course, he's very, very political. He's um, a believer that there should be a focus on the so-called talented 10th, uh, the educated elite could lead the civil rights movement. Uh, he's also very much interested in propaganda because he, he of course, is, is kind of on the left as well and, and, and sympathetic to the idea of propaganda for uplift and for, for changing consciousness. And here's what he says in his essay, The Criteria of Negro Art. So he's actually laying out in this essay what art written by black people should uh, achieve. And so just listen to this language very carefully. Thus it is the bounded duty of black America to begin this great work of the creation of beauty, of the preservation of beauty, of the realization of beauty. And we must use in this work all the methods that men have used before. And what they have been, what have been the tools of the artist in times gone by? First of all, he has used truth. Not for the sake of truth as a scientist seeking truth, but as one whom truth eternally thrusts itself as the highest handmill of imagination and the one great vehicle of universal understanding. Again, artists have used goodness, capital G goodness, by the way, goodness in all aspects of justice, honor, and right, not for the sake of an ethical sanction, but for the one true method of gaining sympathy and human interest. The apostle of beauty thus becomes the apostle of truth and right, not by choice, but by inner and outer compulsion. Free he is, but his freedom is bounded by truth and justice. The slavery only dogs him when he is denied the right to tell truth or recognize the ideal of justice. Thus all art is propaganda, and never must be, despite the wailing of the purest. I stand in utter shamelessness and say that whatever art I have for writing has always been used for the propagation of gaining the right of black folks to love and enjoy. I don't care a damn for any art that is not used for propaganda. But I do care when propaganda is confined to one side while the other is stripped and silent. All right, so if you want to unpack what he's saying there, he's essentially saying art should have a political purpose, and that's why he uses capital T, truth, capital G, goodness. These are the ideals that we should strive for, and art should then reflect those ideals. So that, that's kind of the, the argument he's making. In response to this, we have Elaine Locke. Elaine Locke's 1928 article is called Art and, or Propaganda, and he directly responds to Du Bois's belief that art should essentially be propaganda. Quote, artistically, it's one of fundamental question for us today, art or propaganda, which 
Is this more the generation of the prophet or that of the poet? Shall our intellectual and cultural leadership preach and exhort and sing? I believe that we are at the interesting moment when the prophet shall become the poet and the prophecy becomes the expressive song, the chant of fulfillment. We have too many Jeremiah's, major and minor, and too much of the drab wilderness. My chief objection to propaganda, apart from it besetting cinemonotony and disproportion, is that it perpetuates the position of group inferiority, even in crying out against it. For it leaves and speaks under the shadow of dominant majority whom it hagroons, cajoles, or threatens, or supplicates. It is too extroverted for balance, or poise, or inner dignity and self-respect. Art, in the best sense, is rooted in self-expression, and whether naive or sophisticated is self-contained. In our spiritual growth, genius and talent must more and more choose the role of group expression, and even at times the role of free individualistic expression. In a word, must choose art and put aside propaganda. So there it is. There is a debate. Should this art be propaganda or not? Now, I would argue that Gene Toomer doesn't seem to think it should be propaganda. He, his stories um, are not always flattering to the people he's most sympathetic with. Um, but with that, let, let's get into Cain. It's already been 20 minutes and I haven't even got to the text yet. Let's first talk about the structure of this novel. The novel is made up of vignettes and little short stories and poems all intermixed. So it gives an impressionistic account of the lives of black people. There are one or two, maybe more. I, I wasn't that careful in tracking this, but there are, there are a few characters that show up more than once. But it's essentially, it doesn't, you don't need to really pay attention to it because it's, it's just impressionistic. It's just a snapshot here, a snapshot there. Many of the vignettes deal with interpersonal relationships, particularly between men and women. And many of them deal with the tensions and conflicts caused by the color line, right? And it's going beyond what you see in, in like Charles Chestnut's work, where which really focus on on the color line as, as something that someone tries to get across or get past, right? Um, he he wrote a lot of stuff about passing, for instance. I think the house beyond the house within the cedars or house beyond the cedars, whatever. Those novels about passing, and we'll see Nella Larson later, and she wrote a book about passing as well. So it's not so much about that, but it's about the the way the color line works in those spaces where people have these biracial identities. Um, and, and where they really hit often, he thinks, is in these romantic relationships and in sexuality. So that's kind of a theme throughout all this. Now, I'm going to take Toomer's lead and try to talk about these as snapshots one at a time, although in some cases I'll just be quick and, and passing because we don't have all day here, obviously. In general, these stories do provide slices of life of African-American life. So the first vignette is called Carathena. Um, Toomer does not mess around in starting with this piece. Quote, men have always wanted her, this Katharina, even as a child. We are starting in the countryside. And as this novel goes on, we move more and more to the city. It's kind of like, actually, let's go back to the structure here. The, the first set of stories are in the Georgia countryside. Then you have stories set in Washington. Then you have an intellectual from the north going back to Georgia or going to Georgia to, to study and becoming a rural day laborer. So it's a circle. The story kind of is a circle, even though these characters aren't necessarily connected directly. As Katharina grows up, she realizes her power as men are willing to spend money on her and to make, and, and she starts to make, uh, and they start to make money with hopes of wooing her and getting her hand or at least getting her, her body. She seems to prevent 
any advances of these men. So she's kind of uh, apparently on one level exploiting it, but she also has a child. So that, that's that's the story. And like a lot of these don't really have resolution. It's just almost like I said, a snapshot. It's just a, a, a picture. Um, next, we have Reapers, which is a poem about farming. The most striking image in this poem is when the harvester kills a rat streaking blood across the fields. And um, you can make what you want with that metaphor. It's kind of nice. Uh, next, we have November Cotton Flower, which is another poem. This time it's about sickness and death in the ground. And we got the imagery of the bull vivo, which is a, was a major threat to cotton farmers in the early 20th century. And we also have dead birds. So this it's November, so we got death uh, as a theme there. And there'll be later poems which talk about the earth, talk about the land in more lively and alive terms, but there'll be a different time of the year. So this is the, the, the end of the year, kind of the death and the barrenness of the countryside. Follow that up with a Becky, which is another story, a vignette. It's rather interesting. It's, it's about a white woman with two black children. She is rejected by both the whites and the blacks and therefore is forced to live in a, in a railroad or near the railroad in a small shack. Uh, clearly, this story is about how the color line is damaging to the individuals most affected by it. Here, it's, it's Becky um, and her children. We're also introduced to a preacher, Barlow, who shows up again in another story, at least the same name does. The vignette ends by telling us how Becky died and how the children just went away and then they just kind of become wandering souls, I guess. It's, it's never really explained what happened to them. It's not really necessary. Next we have Face, which is just a poem describing a labor-strained face. Uh, I guess kind of a snapshot also of, of life, of hard work in the, in the southern countryside. Followed up by Cotton Song. The, the poems tend to come in too, by the way. Uh, cotton song. This seems to be a work song that combines lines about Judgment Day with orders to roll. Presumably, we're rolling the the cotton bales. So again, we have the the feeling of harvest time because they're rolling the, these hay cotton bales. Uh, next is Karma. Uh, karma is another vignette about another woman. It is important here that Tumor focuses on women first as the foundation of Black Southern culture and women playing a key role in maintaining the color line. Of course, they are mothers, they're, they're wives. So however the color line works out, whether interracial marriage is encouraged or opposed, how that's enforced by culture, by society, women are going to have a big role in, in enforcing that color line. And we just see what happens to a woman who, Becky, who chooses not to uh, stick to that. She gets ostracized by both blacks and whites. As the works in this series will show, pressure is put on women to maintain racial purity, while promiscuity among men is not nearly as stigmatized. In fact, that's going to be seen even in Home to Harlem and other, other works. The double standard about monogamy and promiscuity. Karma is presented as a strong and hardworking woman. Stronger than her husband, and that's the important point here. Her husband is away much of the time, and she has affairs. During a confrontation about these affairs, she runs into the cane fields and she fires a gun and she fakes her own suicide. Her husband and another man go into the cane to try to find her. They find her body and bring her back. And it's proved when they find she's not dead that she's just deceiving them. And as Toomer says it, he finds out he was deceived twice. Uh, I guess deceived once by the fake suicide and once by the adultery. Bane, he can't attack his wife, his wife is too strong of a figure, too overpowering in the relationship. So Bane attacks the man, 
next to him because he can't attack karma and for that he's sent to the chain gang right it, early on it says he's you know her husband is in a gang and you might think well it's criminal behavior but no it's, a, it's the chain gang the the gang for blacks in the rural south really meant the chain gang the the destination for many uh, vagrants or or petty criminals um, i urge you to see the documentary 13th which lays out uh, post-civil war slavery via among other things the criminal justice system next we have song of the sun this poem seems to be about the legacy of slavery and the generational transition to new lives in other places but the inability to fully escape uh, slavery Georgia Dusk is the next poem. This poem is about work. It provides a quite vivid and, and a lot of disturbing imagery. It seems that the legacy of slavery cannot be freed, even in the new economy of sawmills. I actually kind of like this poem. Um, where was this quote? Smoke from the pyramidal sawdust pile curls up, blue ghost of trees tearing low, where only chips and stumps are left to show the pr solid proof of former domicile. Meanwhile, the men, with vestiges of pomp, race memories of king and caravan, high priest and ostrich, and a juju man go singing through the footpaths of the swamp. Their voices rise, the pine trees are guitars, strumming pine needles fall like sheets of rain. Their voices rise, the chorus of the cane, is caroling a vesper to the stars. Hmm. Kind of nice. Um, I mean, you could look at it as class too, but it seems in this in this case, it's more the legacy of, of slavery for me. Um, next, we get Fern. This, this Fern, F-E-R-N. This vignette, again, it's about a woman and it centers on a woman who, who, who crosses the color line. She's half Jewish and half Christian. And it, so it's providing this commentary on the color line. And Fern is yet another young woman who's attracting men. We, we've seen one of these before in this story already. But at some point, she gets bored of them and she becomes very aloof. Quote, she becomes a virgin. It's, it's a nice line there. I, I, when I first read it, I was thinking of these, these Christians who, who have that kind of re-virginization ritual or something. Uh, I think, I don't know if that's still a thing in evangelical Christianity, but it was a few years ago. So she becomes a virgin. She takes just sitting in the porch. Now, the narrator wants to do something to save her, to prevent her from becoming a prostitute. That's his concern, his justification for kind of courting her and wooing her. Essentially, Fern is silent throughout this whole tale, and mostly it's what we hear about her and how other people see her. She's therefore like a victim of perception. Whites avoid her, and blacks see her as accessible. When she finally does speak, it's only to announce her anger at the world and its pettiness and its gossip. And so she, at the end, she kind of critiques the whole narrative we've just read the narrative which sees her as an object of other people's gaze finally at the end when she speaks she's criticizing what we just read she's saying you know I, I, let me just find the quote for you she says doesn't it make you mad she meant the row of petty and gossiping people she meant the world all right um there's a couple more poems. Um, let's just move on for a second. Uh, Esther, I didn't have much to say about those two poems. Next, we have another story, Esther. This is an interesting story and maybe the most accessible thus far in the collection and about accessibility. I found these, these tough to read at times. There's a lot of different styles being used. So there's a jumpiness about the style. 
Um, and some of them are just really rich in text and it's modernist, so it's playing with different approaches and techniques. Some have dialogue kind of within one paragraph. We may have even two characters speaking within a paragraph, uh, but no paragraph breaks, for instance. So it, sometimes it's difficult, but it's modernist and it's playing with conventions. But Esther is, is a little bit more straightforward. Uh, Esther falls in love with a preacher, Barlow. I think this is the same Barlow from the other story. Uh, and she's a young woman and she's, she's saving herself for him. She kind of falls in love with him and just dreams of his return. And she keeps kind of pining for him. In her 20s, she's finally in a position to seduce Barlow. And she does so. She takes him up to a room. And then at that point, she's disgusted by his vulgarity. Uh, the reality of this man, uh, his his beard, his vulgar language, his teeth, all this stuff at that moment disgusts her and her uh, illusion of, of this man is destroyed. And, and, and that ends the story. She just walks away. Conversion, a poem again, comes next. And I'll just read it. It's so short. African guardians of soul drunk with rum, feasting on a strange cassava, yielding to the world and the weak palabra, of the white-faced sardonic god, grins, cries, amen, shouts, hosanna. I don't know. It was the conversion from paganism to Christianity, Africa to Christian America, I guess. That's the conversion. Uh, next is Portrait in Georgia, another short poem. Here a body is contrasted with the tools of a lynching. So I'll just read it. Um, and this is setting up the next story. Hair, braided chestnut, coiled like a lynchers rope. Eyes, faggots. Lips, old scars, or the first red blisters. Breath, the last sweet set of cane. And her slim body, white as the ash of black flesh after flame. Um, really troubling language there. Uh, the body contrasted with uh, clear imagery of a lynching. Uh, the sticks, the lynchers rope, red blisters, old scars. I mean, that's kind of disturbing itself. Old scars, that the scars of this person who's being lynched are not necessarily the first not necessarily a source of violence but you know hard work and labor could have been the course too um next we have blood burning moon where we actually do get a lynching so we're everything's kind of building up this is about a third of way through the story and everything's been building up to this this lynching it's a short story essentially about a lynching a white man and a black man fight over a woman louisa who, as we can suspect by this point in, in the novel, is light-skinned. The white man is fatally injured, but is able to inform others before he dies that he was killed by that man. So the town then lynches this, the, the black man. It's, it's worth reading this passage just for the horror of it. Um, but I, I'm kind of running late here, so I won't do it. But if you got the Library of America version, it's page 43 and, and 44. It's the end of the vignette. The last paragraph or so um, it has that n-word in it too so it's probably best I don't try to read it so this ends part one of Cain uh, which is set in the south the second section relocates the story or the stories to the city we have already seen the damage of the color line its violence its psychological damage the damage it does to relationships the damage it does to uh, healthy relationships between men and women and family life we have seen the damage it has done to the land through destructive lumbering and agriculture. Uh, having seen that damage, it's time to move on to the city. Is there hope in the city? I guess is our question. Uh, we start with 7th Street. We are in Washington, and this is an African-American neighborhood. 
that tumor tells us is created by prohibition and war. Um, whether the Civil War or World War One, I'm not quite sure. I'm I'm guessing the Civil War, like the end of slavery, but it could be World War One. These returning soldiers with money to spend, um, enjoying life in the cities. We are introduced to jazz clubs, uh, which is of course a kind of part of the imagery of the Harlem Renaissance. Next we have Robert. Um, and I need to stop here as we get a second vignette about a man. The first was about this lynching in the South. So the South is is generally feminized in this account. It's there's there's most of the stories about are centered about the lives of women. It kills the the first man that we really have a story about. And in Karma, we have a, a man as a real central figure in it, but he's emasculated by by a more domineering woman in his life. So is the question here, the black man must shift to the city to survive? Is this part of Toomer's message? Um, in fact, when we get to the last story, Cabness, it's called Cabness, that's about a black man who goes to the south and is ruined by it. So is there a, a suggestion here that the city is a place where the black man can thrive? I'm not sure. Yet this man is not surviving, really. He's in decline. He's suffering the after effects of rickets, and he cares nothing about his community or his family. He's kind of actually an odious figure. Um, the next story is Avi. It's another boy chases girl story that we, we've seen before in the South, but now, now we have that story set in the North, so let's see if it works out any different. He chases her in college, and he's jealous that other men seem to be able to buy her love. Maybe she's a prostitute. Maybe she's just... Um, exchanging dates and good times for, for sex. Maybe there's really no sex going on. Um, you know, we get it through A.V.'s point of view and he sees her with other men and is jealous and kind of comes to the assumption that she's, but there, she's, her love is being bought. Finally, she's able to get, he's able to get into a relationship with her or at least have an encounter of sorts, but it's not clearly defined. Tumor writes that A.V. loved him, quote, silently in her own way. The trick here is that the narrator never wants to pay her and therefore seems not to be able to have sex with her. And that might lead some credence to the idea that she is uh, a charity girl of sorts. He takes her out uh, from time to time. He tries to do the regular dating thing and it doesn't work. And his love fades at the moment when he realizes her true nature, realizes that basically she's a she's acceptor of commodified love. Then I looked at Avi. Her heavy eyes were closed. Her breathing was as faint and regular as a child's in slumber. My passion died. I was afraid to move lest I disturb her. Hours and hours I guessed it was there. She lay there. My body grew numb. I shivered. I coughed. I wanted to get up and whittle at the boxes of the young trees. I withdrew my hand. I raised her head to waken her. She did not stir. I got up and walked around. I found my policeman friend and talked to him. We both came up and bent over her. He said that it would be all right for her to stay there just so long as she got away before the workman came down. Um, and then the last scene of this image is the Capitol Dome over this imagery. Uh, he hates to wake her. He still has these feelings for her, but his passion for her dies when he kind of works it on his head what kind of woman she is. Um, next we have a, a couple stories, both of which dealing with the metaphor of honey. The first is beehive. Here the bees seem to be a metaphor for the bustle of city life. The bees at the end of the sonnet dream of being curled forever in some faraway farmyard flower. So is this the 
people who have moved to the city pining for the rule past, pining for the good old days. Of course, we've we just read a few pages ago that that countryside is not good, so there's nothing really useful to go back to. But you know, is there still that nostalgia, that dream? Next, we have Storm Ending, which I think is short enough to read. Thunder blossoms gorgeously over our heads. Great howl bell-like flowers rumbling in the wind, stretching clappers to strike our ears. Full-lipped flowers bitten by the sun, bleeding rain, dripping rain like, a gold, like golden honey, and the sweet earth flying from the thunder. Not sure what to make of it, but we have the honey language and the flower imagery reused here. So maybe someone who knows poetry can explain what's going on there. Theater. Uh, so in this story, John is the brother of the manager of a theater in a neighborhood of jazz clubs and pool halls. He watches the dancers perform very passively. Uh, one of the dancers in particular he's interested in, Doris, and Doris seems to desire John. John just kind of sits there watching, and John is fascin fasc fascinated by and fantasizes about Doris, but he doesn't do anything. And this is going to be this idea of kind of Passivity, losing a chance at a relationship, it's going to be brought up in another story, in another context. Next, we have a poem again. The, her lips were copper wire. This poem combines the imagery of lips and kissing with electricity and light. It, it's really kind of interesting. I'm not sure the meaning outside of just the electrical power of the kiss, um, but I am interested here in the just the language of electricity, given that in the early 20th century, American cities were being electrified and going through that process. That, that process was started like in the 1880s, but it was still ongoing. And certainly people from the countryside wouldn't have had this experience of electricity. Next, Calling Jesus. A woman, this is a short story essentially, um, but it's only one page. A woman pushes a puppy out of her house every day, yet it keeps returning. It's being returned by Jesus. Um, I guess the puppy could be a metaphor for any, anything that we refuse, that we need, or we should have. But since the story is called Calling Jesus, we can assume it's a religious faith. Toomer even says that it's Jesus who's returning the dog every day. But it's just three paragraphs. Okay, next, Box Seat. One of the longer tales in the book uh, of short tales. Box Seat is another example of a story exploring sex, jealousy, and unrequited love. The section opens with some nice imagery. Quote, houses are shy girls whose eyes shine resented recently on the dusk body of the street. Dark swaying forms of Negroes are street songs that woo virginal houses. All right. Our main character is Dan Moore, who was born in the cane field and has worked it before coming north. He's attempting to woo Muriel and she resists or even resents his advances. Dan eventually confesses his love for her, but Muriel wants nothing, nothing of it. In a passionate excitement, Dan follows Muriel to a show. It's some kind of mock, or maybe it's a real fight between dwarves. Or dwarfs, I should say. I played too much D&D, &D, so I said dwarves. I guess this plural is dwarfs. So we get a nice piece of American life. If you've been following this cast, you know I love these moments in American literature that don't do anything except just expose the elements that get forgotten in most of most history books. 
while watching the fight and fussing over Muriel, he starts to have strange thoughts, and he has this these these weird internal monologues. It's almost like he's going mad. When one of his fighters hands Muriel a flower, Dan stands up and shouts, Jesus was once a leper. He's then escorted out of the establishment a bit violently. Um, it's, a, it's a fascinating little story. I, I Again, with, like with a lot of these, I don't quite always know how to get my head around them. And I, I wish I had more time to, to study these. And um, I'm certain we'll come back to this book again. Prayer. It's another poem. This one is about the body-soul division. So if you're interested in the philosophy of mind-body dualism, you can read that story, that poem. Uh, we get a, another poem, this one called Harvest Song. And it's strange we go back to the South at this point and a bunch of stories about the North. It's a poem of harvesting from the point of view of the reaper. It's really quite beautiful and it's my favorite poem in the entire work. I really like how it discusses and looks at the mechanization of agriculture. Um, and th maybe that's partially the point. Uh, the machinery taking over the work uh, that people used to do. The second to last story, Bonnet and Paul. Here we got another dysfunctional love duo uh, caused by the color line. Uh, this one I, I, I read was, was semi-autobiographical. In this case, the girl... Bona is after the boy and, and Paul is after the girl. So there is a mutual attraction and, and, and desire. It's set in a high school. Bona is from the South and white. And so she's unable to really pursue Paul because she assumes Paul would not accept her because of her background. And Paul assumes the girl is a Southern white and simply will not date a black boy. Uh, he's bi biracial, actually. The setting is a school and it even opens up in a gym class. And so, as you might expect happens, they both hesitate, and it often happens in, this is common in kind of high school infatuations and attractions. If you hesitate, you lose your chance, right? People move on with their lives, and relationships tend to be a little bit more fleeting and um, at, that, at that time of people's lives. So, they lose their chance, and we're all sad. And this leads us to the final story of... of Cain. It's actually the third part of Cain, and it makes up just one story called Cabness. And as I said before, it's the return to the South. So after spending some time in Washington, we go to the South, come full circle. Um, it makes up the entire of the third part of the novel. It's partially a story, partially a play. Some parts of it are written in without, not really stage notes so much, but it's written, you know, with uh, like a play and the, with the dialogue, how dialogue and play is written. So a northern biracial man goes to the south to teach, and he finds the south to be horrible. And this is essentially an autobiographical tale. Uh, of course, Toomer went to Georgia to teach. The main character, Ralph Kip Kapnis, is essentially Gene Toomer. However, the character's fate is different. In Georgia, uh, the man loses his teaching job and is forced to work as a day laborer. And thus, we literally begin, end where we began. The story begins with Cabinus in a very bad place. He's unable to sleep and he's unable to take a drink due to the policies of the school. He is disturbed by the little things of life in the South as well, but he does find beauty in, in, the, in, the, in the South. But mostly he's feeling oppressed by the rules that he's forced to follow. And this is actually going to be a thematic connect, connection to another novel we'll look at in a little bit called Quicksand by Nella Larson. There we have a woman who's, it's not so much the policies of the school that bother her. It's just the overall language, moralism of the school. And there she's working at a place kind of like Tuskegee. 
although I think it has a fictionalized name. It does have a fictionalized name. I just forgot what it was. But it's it's the kind of the moralism, this language of uplift that bothers her so much. And so she just wants to uh, to bail on it. We'll get to that in a few weeks, I guess. During a conversation with the Southern Blacks, Cabinus is embarrassed by his praise of the South when it was contrasted with their brutal statements about lynching and racism. Their, their kind of very upfront, direct language about the racism, the color line, and those things. He, they get him to have a drink, and he gets fired later on for drinking. And he's lectured at the necessity to set a good example. And here, although I'm running late, I want to read this passage uh, where Cabinus is lectured by the administrator and fired. Professor Cabnes, to come straight to the point, the progress, of, the progress of the Negro race is jeopardized whenever the personal habits and examples set by its guides and mentors fall below the acknowledged and hard-won standards of its average member. This institution, of which I am the humble president, was founded and has been maintained at the great cost of, a cost of great labor and untold sacrifice. Its purpose is to teach our youth to live better, cleaner, and more noble lives to prove to the world that the Negro race can be just like any other race. It hopes to attain this aim partly by the salutary example set by its instructors. I cannot hinder the progress of a race simply to indulge a single member. I have thought the matter to be beforehand. Be, 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 I thought the matter out beforehand, I can assure you. Therefore, if I find your registration on, resignation on my desk tomorrow morning, Mr. Cabinus, I shall not feel obliged to call the sheriff. Sorry about botching the quote at the end there, but that, that's it. Um, with his, without his job to back him up, he quickly descends to the status of a day laborer, and that's where the novel ends. I mean, there's more stuff that happens, but um, we're getting close to an hour here, and I originally planned this podcast to be like 20-minute episodes, but I'm obviously not really sustaining that very well. If I can keep within an hour, I guess that, that's better. Um, this was a hard piece. I spent more time on this 130 pages or so than any other equivalent length section in this podcast. It's obviously a modernist work, experimenting in styles and formats and genres. I, I found it difficult to read, but I never found it uninteresting, and I, I certainly enjoy it. I, I'll come back to it at some point when I have time. I enjoyed how Toomer forced me to pay attention to the prose. Uh, I probably could have done an entire episode on just several of these stories. Certainly, I could have done a whole episode on Cabinus. Um, and I'm certain that articles have been written on many of these, maybe whole dissertations. Uh, the most I can do here is scratch the surface and encourage you to look at this work yourself or, or solicit your own feelings and thoughts and, and commentary on this work. Um, but now's the time I like to talk about the major themes of, of the work. Uh, I do this for every book, and I'll just kind of list these through. I'll try not to say too much about each of them because I got a few of them. Uh, the first of these is the color line. Uh, both we have the color line between blacks and whites, of course, uh, between the north and the south, uh, and how the color line works in the north versus the south, or at least we within Washington in the city and the south. Of course, Washington was a slave territory, so I'm not sure I should call it the north. But then we have the color line within the black community, which is maybe more Toomer's point, the, the conflicts and the tensions between biracial people and, and, and those of non-mixed heritage. Racial violence is a theme here. Uh, we have 
really one example of, of lynching, but of course racial violence is a backdrop to, to all, to the whole context here, the whole story. Um, we have non-official, non-mob violence from time to time, but really one of the centerpieces in the story is uh, a, a narrative of a lynching. That's quite a brutal read. Next, we have emasculation and or just masculinity in general and what that means and how the color line shapes masculinity. I think the strongest statement about masculinity is that story Karma, which is about a, a southern black man who feels overwhelmed by his more powerful and more independent wife and how her adultery affected his his own masculinity. And he has to take it out on other other men. And then the general idea of, of possessing or control, or not maybe not even controlling, but possessing women sexually uh, as a tie to masculinity. That shows up a lot here, this this goal of possessing a woman or, or, or acquiring a woman or, or at least building a relationship with them. That ties to the next theme, which is unrequited or otherwise irrational love, love across the color line. Next, Earl rule migrations. That, that's kind of the whole structure of the story, actually, of, of the novel. As we start in the south, we go to the north, or go to Washington anyways, and then we go back to, to the south, to the rule, at the, the countryside at the end. So these migrations and how things play out differently in, in different places. This is actually the theme that connects in a way to the octopus, which doesn't deal anything about uh, African-American life, but you have that same kind of mobility between the city and the countryside and that same tension between urban life and, and life in the countryside. We certainly have the theme of prostitution here and uh, the fine line between uh, prostitution and, and kind of the charity girl. Um, I, I think I'm borrowing that term from a different context, but a, a charity girl just means someone who who exchanges sexual favors for 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 kind of dating and other presents and, and favors. I think that term is explored in Kathy Pice's book, Cheap Amusements, if you want to look in, look into it. Um, class is a part here, uh, plays a role in this story. Class as a, a reflection of the color line, particularly when you're talking about biracial people who might have uh, more wealthy backgrounds. Class in the case of Cabness, where you have a relatively well-off person going to the South to teach and being somewhat offended by the goals and the values of the people he runs into, and then having downward mobility as a result of moving to the South. Um, women uh, is another theme. Women were part of, had their own veil. And I, I think that story Fern is a really good example of this, where the whole story is about how other people see Fern, and it's only at the end that Fern gets a voice. And this is really reflective of of how the veil functions in terms of the color line as well. I mean, the, the idea of the veil comes from Du Bois. It means black people are always kind of having this double consciousness, seeing themselves as white America sees them and then seeing themselves as they see themselves, um, just as, as regular people. But you're always having that double consciousness or being part of America, but also being part of black America at the same time. We have examples of that being applied to women here. Uh, next, we have parochial, gossipy nature of rural life. Uh, certainly, that's the case with that white woman with the black children who's, who's kind of exiled. We have Fern being gossiped about. Um, you know, most of the women in this story are subjects of gossip. Um, and I think that is really cuts home in the story Fern, 
but it comes up in other stories as well. Next, uh, for a theme, literary experimentation. Um, I, I just think this, since this is a modernist work, we should point that out. It's, it's not as common maybe in American writing as it is in, in European writing, um, but it's really well done here. And I think it's really interesting, you know, the combining of poems, really having themes connect stories together rather than characters. It's, it's really rich, and, and I think that's one of the things that make this work interesting and, and, and lively and, and, and enduring. Finally, I, it's, it's, again, it's a theme I, brought, I came up with when I was reading The Octopus, but it's here again, is, is rural mysticism or, or the rural mystic or, or the land having a life of its own or giving the, life, giving the land mystical or spiritual qualities. And here I'm thinking more perhaps of the poems than I am of any particular stories. But there is a lot of imagery just of the southern landscape and the farms and the fields and all that. So if you want to think about rural mysticism or the rural mystic, you, you perhaps could read this book and, and, and be fulfilled. Um, well, that is going to do it for Gene Toomer's Cain. Wow, what a long episode. Uh, thank you so much for bearing with me and listening to, to this. Um, if you have any, if you like this, please share it, like it subscribe to my channel share it with people spread the word about this please comment if you want to email me you can do so at 100pagescast at gmail.com and I'll get back to you I may even read your letters if they're kind and informative and useful read them and respond to them on on this podcast in future episodes um, so I will see you in 100 pages the next work we'll be reading is Claude McKay's Home to Harlem <laughs>